fantastic book. Simply groundbreaking. I think it's very important. Best book I've read. Extremely uh, interesting. Absolutely stupendous. Fun to read. Very well researched. Just phenomenal. Very profound. Welcome to episode three of the Asian Aspiration podcast. I'm your host, Marina Well, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. We're happy to have you. If you are a regular, i.e. you've listened to the past two episodes, <laughs> welcome back. It's good to have you here again. All right. So over the past two weeks, we've been exploring the main themes of the book, The Asian Aspiration, why Africa should emulate Asia and how it shouldn't. We've talked about the idea behind the book, and last week we addressed the topic of turning a crisis into opportunity. If you haven't listened to those, you must. Like, absolutely must. Oh, definitely. Like, right now. Thanks. Pause. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so today we're talking about drum roll. Emily, I need a drum roll. Getting the basics right. Yes, you had that right. Getting the basics right. So there's the notion that many African countries miss the buck or fail to get the fundamentals right to launch their economies onto a successful path. Today, we want to tease out that idea a bit more um, because African countries definitely do need to focus on the basics. And if you're wondering what the basics are, Go read the book. Kidding. We're about to tell you, of course. Um, So sit tight um, and enjoy the rest of the show. But to get us started, we're going to have a chat with Emily van der Merwe, as always, one of the co-authors of the book and the most phenomenal person at the foundation, if I do say so myself. (laughs) All right. Emily, welcome to today's show. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Are you excited? Episode three, man. We're making moves. Yeah, um, (laughs) um, although, so, um, for our listeners, uh, we're back in our little room for requirement, Um, but I've been telling Rina all that I'm a bit like a like a cat, like a temperamental cat. <laughs> Every second day, I absolutely refuse to do podcasts. And yes, then, that's very true. And on the days in between, I'm like, yay, let's do this. <laughs> that is entirely true. But here we are today. <laughs> Indeed. So thank you for joining us. Um, To get us started, Emily, could you sort of share a little bit about what it means when you say getting the basics right, right? And why exactly does that warrant a chapter in the book? Okay, sure. So our book consists of uh, 16 chapters uh, wait let's make that 15 <laughs> 15 <laughs> chapters the first 10 are country case studies yeah. so we look at all of our countries mm-hmm. beginning with um, Japan Taiwan South Korea and ending with Vietnam China um, and it, so looking in depth at each of those and then the next five chapters or the final five chapters are um, African application chapters so that's where we look at the actual lessons mm-hmm. and trying to answer the question uh, what does Africa need to do and so um, in thinking about narrowing down these lessons into just five chapters, it literally <laughs> went something like, how many do you think we can have? Um, three is too few, six is too many, so let's go for five. Five. Um, so first, obviously, there's leadership, yeah. uh, without which nothing works. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's innovation. Uh, by a different name, we call it uh, don't be a prisoner of your past. So it's about 
just a shift away from ideology towards pragmatism. Mm. And then, thirdly, before we could get to the nitty-gritty, um, so infrastructure is one and openness to business is another, there needs to be a sum prerequisite, and this is what the basics are. Mm. So, so basics then, in short, lesson three out of five, um, and it's about starting at the at the at the beginning. You know, um, mm-hmm. start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Um, I'm a um, sound music fan. <laughs> <laughs> I would call them the foundation of growth, these basics, Mm. Um, because in the examples that we've used, getting the basics right would set a country on a higher growth path. Um, I don't know if you did undergrad economics. Yep. Do you remember the solo model? Yes, indeed. Yeah. So so the basics are essentially what what determine your steady state Mm -hmm. of development. So so without these, there will be a break on your development. Right. Um, and and the, the typical examples that we use is agriculture, land reform, and critically education. Mm-hmm. So Emily, I know when we talk about getting the basics right, for some people sometimes it's like, oh, but we've been sort of independent for forty years or thirty years. So the idea is not that well, you've already you've gone past you know what you can do at the start and so always lost. But it's this idea of returning to the things that are fundamental, such as education you mentioned, and making sure that you set that up so that, you know, um, you have a population that is very well educated, they're likely to be higher productive uh, members of the society. Is that the type of thinking that we're going with, right? So it's just exactly. returning to those things and making sure that they're actually right. Yes, exactly. Okay. And it doesn't mean you should stop focusing on a you know a functioning financial system mm-hmm. or, or good infrastructure. It's right. not pausing everything, but it's, it's acknowledging that, um, as we very well know, um, if you don't have a functioning primary education system, yeah. at some point you're going to run into problems. Exactly. All right, so Emily, you write extensively about Japan in the book. Can you tell us about why um, Japan is such a good example, especially when it comes to the basics? Um, sure. So we see Japan as the um, it's the starting point for Asia's development. Hmm. Um, to us, it seems as though all the other Asian countries, obviously starting with um, the Tigers, right. they all took their cues from Japan. Um, and that's why Japan takes up such a central role in the book and in the in the Asian development story. So they started from the 1860s already. It's called, it was called the Meiji Restoration. There was right. an emperor called Meiji, and he was very progressive. Um, and he had this idea of getting foreign knowledge into Japan mm-hmm. um, to help them for for one um to help them build their um like their iron furnaces mm. um and and to get engineers in from germany and all over to come and help them um get started right. and then um and this extended to education so they sent students abroad to go and learn i'm, I'm talking mm. about the 1860s so wow. this is well before your erasmus <laughs> <laughs> way before yeah. um so yeah and 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 they really took their time to mm. focus on education. Um, there's one point in the book where we say that it took Japan 100 years to reach full um, school enrollment. Mm. And the ones that followed them, the South Koreas and the and the Taiwans right. and the Singapores, it took them 30 years. So so that shows you something about um, about the, the benefit of, of example, you know, mm. learning. But that's not what we're talking about here, of course. Um, but so Japan is a good example of education as a basic, but yeah. it's not the best example of 
of agriculture as a basic. And for that, um, I think Taiwan is the one we should look at. So Taiwan had an excellent land reform program, which really acknowledged this exactly this fact that if you don't get um, the basic thing about food production right, nothing else is going to succeed. Hmm. And which is, what's the sort of basic... Um... So so they um, uh, they had very unequal land distribution. They had a feudal system, um, hmm. almost like a, like people would be familiar with in, in the UK. Hmm. Um, and and then they, they just took their time. Um, the state uh, essentially buying the land from from the feudal landlords, mm. uh, distributing it to um, to the food producers, to the or the peasants, right. um, and then and the peasants paying for it in the form of essentially um, a rent um, <laughs> over okay. a period, over a number of years. Um, and the state never had any collateral in this, so they didn't carry any risk. But it it, it remains a very good system because it, it got food production up. They mm. had they had a saying in that time that went. If you overturn the nest, there'll be no eggs left. Um, so they really f- tried to get food production as, as a basic right. And, and this is a, a very famous, obviously, economic theory. But once you once you release labor from the rural areas mm. because you get more productive agriculture, then people start going to cities and that's where industries form. Right. So that's part of the basics. The basics is also describing this natural process of once you get agricultural productivity up to a certain level, you don't need people to have all of their children working in the land anymore. Mm-hmm. People can go to cities right. and they have a surplus mm-hmm. uh, critically. It's not just they're not pushed to the cities because they don't they're, they're, uh, because of poverty in the rural areas. It's because there's a surplus right. and, um, and that enables industries to develop elsewhere. It is, of course, important to ask, as the authors have done in the book, what are the basics Asia got right and what do African countries need to focus on? To get some answers on this, we asked the British author and journalist Joe Studwell, and here's what he shared. Well, I think uh, there are two obvious basic policy strategies that, that unify the Asian experience. And the first one is that Asian governments uh, recognized a simple and in some ways obvious but often ignored fact that the vast majority of people in poor countries live in the countryside and therefore the prioritization of agriculture was the place to begin with policy. Um, East Asia divides obviously into land reform countries and non-land reform countries but whether land reform occurred or it didn't governments almost universally focused a lot of resources um, on the agricultural sector uh, and in all the different ways that you need to focus, um, not just on extension or provision of subsidy for fertilizer, uh, but also in terms of rural infrastructure to support the creation of markets and so on and so forth. And by, by getting uh, agriculture moving, of course, the, the number one impact was simply the reduction of poverty. I mean, you have the biggest impact on poverty by addressing the life of the largest number of people who work in, in agriculture. But it was also more than that in East Asia. What we saw was that by creating a little bit of surplus in, in the rural sector, they created a lot of demand for products which could very easily be produced, manufactured locally because they were simple consumer goods in most, uh, in, in most cases. 
Yeah, so you have you have the fact that the focus on agriculture is poverty reducing. You have the fact that the demand that's created in agriculture connects then to uh, manufactured product that can be made locally. And that indeed is the second uh, big thing that separates uh, East Asia or unifies East Asia in the sense of being a commonality, that you get this overemphasis of the manufacturing side of the economy. Um, and it's done in one of two ways, in as much as in Southeast Asia you see greater reliance on foreign direct investment and in processing uh, manufacturing, and in Northeast Asia, in Japan and China, much more emphasis on the, on the building of, of indigenous capability. But nonetheless, the, the, the stress on manufacturing um, really is a commonality of the region. And it's manufacturing um, where a large part of production is for export. And this provides a fundamental discipline when governments provided subsidies of different kinds, whether uh, cheap credit or whether more uh, or, or free land or cheap electricity or whatever. Um, but the focus on having to produce for export means that when governments were giving subsidy, they could see if they were getting something back in return because companies had to sell in the international market. It wasn't uh, the same as um, in import substitution experiments where um, subsidy simply uh, is able to produce a lot of globally non-competitive domestic production. So I think that those are the two um, most obvious policy approaches uh, that define the East Asian experience, obviously applied in different degrees in different countries. In each and every successful case, whether it be Japan, whether it be Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore, or even Vietnam, the basics were put in place as a matter of priority. A quote from the book that I really liked was that, and it could be taken out of context, but let, let me know actually when you find it in the book, tweet at us. Um, but this is the lesson from Hiroshima, Japan, and many other Asian countries. If development is underwritten by the basics, there's little that the hand of fortune can do to hold that. Um, there's this myth of leapfrogging. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, and it just doesn't work. There is no such thing as leapfrogging the basics. You can't skip over agriculture and um, or agricultural productivity and education and go straight to to rocket science, you know? Um, and so we have this great example, I think we even mentioned in a book, of while we were in Taiwan on our research trip, visiting, coincidentally, the um, Acer HQ in mm. Taipei. Mm -hmm. So Acer, um, some of you might know, very big um, tech company, yeah. started with laptops in the 80s, I think it was 86, and, um, and grew into a massive... Um, personal computer company, started by Stan Shi, who is from Taiwan. Um, but uh, while we were at visiting uh, Acer HQ, Greg got a message from someone in Zimbabwe. He knows they, um, I won't give any details. But essentially the request was from this person um, that we advise them, help them, because they want to set up a tech industry in Zimbabwe. They want to start building computers in Zimbabwe. <laughs> And, and we looked at each other and we started laughing because this is exactly what <laughs> what the limits are imposed by by not getting the basics right. Mm -hmm. How can you develop a tech industry if you don't have any, you know, supporting industries, if you don't have, um, for example, universities that teach programming? Or... For starters, you need you need 
industries that can support um, or supply parts. Yeah. You know, you can't just import all the components of a computer and then build it and there's your tech industry. That's mm -hmm. not a tech industry. That's an assembly yeah. line. That's it for today, folks. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing this time with you all, as always. And I hope you've learned something today, as I have. Uh, make sure to tune in again next week via our website, theasianaspiration.com. And if you have any questions, please feel free to email us. Other than that, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook to stay up to date with all the fun stuff we're always doing here at the Brentus Foundation. Like, share, subscribe. Exactly. Do that. <laughs> all right. Catch you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye.